Easter Sunday is one that follows, and the one that follows is a pivotal Sunday because of what's now ahead for the church after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and appearances, as the Apostle Paul would say. As uh, Mark noted, we are going to reverse uh, the number of times that you'll be hearing from me uh, for the next quarter. Unlike the first quarter, which was January, February, and March, you heard from me essentially three Sundays out of four. And now into the next quarter, which begins uh, today, January, or rather April, May, and June, uh, you'll be hearing from me approximately one out of uh, four Sundays. As Mark said, the elders expressed to me their desire to be in front of the congregation as you want them to be. Uh, and we're trading consistency, one person in the pulpit, which is the typical IMP process, for their presence, for their communication, for their testimony from your, from your shepherds, which is an important piece of that communication process, as Bill underscored. When you do hear from me, you'll be hearing over this next quarter, and this would be no, no surprise, I don't think, but we'll be looking at the book of Acts, which is the second volume in Luke's two-volume work, the first volume being the story of Jesus, the gospel of Luke. In the book of Acts, the beginning of the church is the second volume. But we'll do it in a little different way than maybe you or how I've been uh, traditionally how we've heard, traditionally heard sermons, and that is we traditionally would look at the book of Acts and would see them pointing down to a particular pattern of how to do worship, how to govern the church, uh, how to convert people, and so on, and then they would say to us, now you go and do likewise. But recently, and I think it might have started when I bought the book and read the chapters by Rubel Shelley and Randy Harris, and it's the title of that book that just was so striking and transformative to me. The title of their book, it was a book on the book of Acts, was The Second Incarnation. The Second Incarnation. And now when I look at the book of Acts, what I see is the people in the book of Acts looking back at the gospel living out the ministry of Jesus as if it were a second incarnation. We'll begin with a little a different approach, one that you might be really familiar with, a particular character we've been looking for, most of us, all of our lives. His story is told at one location in Acts in chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. And so to, to launch the sermon, let me read that in your presence. Acts 11, beginning at 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution connected with Stephen, you'll recall that stoning, made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But some men from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began speaking to the Gentiles as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these people from Antioch believed. And the news reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when Barnabas arrived, he witnessed the grace of God, and he rejoiced, and he began to encourage them to remain true to the Lord. And then Luke says, now Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit 
full of faith. And considerable numbers were added to the Lord. And so it is that after they were fully integrated as a church, first Jews, then Sumerians, then people from the continent of Africa, finally people where my people come from, full-fledged Gentiles. It's where the Knutsons came from, and the Helgesons, and the Schmitz, and the Hughes, and the rest of us, most of the rest of us. It's then, Luke adds, that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so this morning, I would like to begin this look at Acts, which is looking at the Gospels, about a character you and I have been looking for for some time, really all of our lives. And it's no secret who we're talking about. It's Barnabas. I saw Barnabas in the search committee, who goes by the name of Mark here. And then I saw another Barnabas in the staff who goes by the name of Lori. I call her Lori Barnabas Lee. And then knowing that it takes one to know one, I asked Lori, I said, who would you identify as other Barnabases in this congregation? And it didn't take Lori Lee long to come up with a list of individuals and then the descriptions of, or, yeah, descriptions of why she would call them Barnabases. And I think you could probably assume that you were on that list. You likely were, but I decided not to read those names in front of you. I just did not mess with that assumption. I got a call this week, two different calls, one from a 75-year-old Episcopalian and another from a 90-year-old Church of Christer. Both were persons of color, both whom I've known and worked closely with over the last 10 years, and they called me out of the blue. First, it was the 90-year-old Church of Christer, and I told him on that phone call, I said, you have been to me since I've known you, a Barnabas. And he knew that was one of the strongest compliments I could give to a person. He knew it. And he responded as if it were. And when the 75-year-old Episcopalian called because of the relationship we've had, I called her a Barnabas as well. And she knew enough of the story to know what that meant. If Barnabas lived in Franklin, Tennessee, we'd know about him. If he were a member of this congregation, he would be the heart of this congregation. And fortunately for us, Luke has a full character sketch of Barnabas in his second volume, the book of Acts. But I'm assuming that we all know who Barnabas is because it's such a common trope for preachers. You've heard the sermons before. I've preached them. I've heard them. They're typically three-point sermons about this man we call Barnabas. And when you're called Barnabas or call somebody Barnabas, we typically, at least as long as we've been literate in Scripture, we know what that means. The story begins in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verses 36 and 37. Here's how he's introduced. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land, and he sold it. He brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I envision him there with a suitcase full of fifties and a hundreds, giving it over to the apostles. A piece of land all to the cause. What a strong model of good the traditional sermon goes. 
So strong, in fact, that a couple named Ananias and Sapphira tried to keep up and they lied and all sorts of trouble resulted. But it was this act of generosity that brought him the nickname Barnabas. And then, of course, the traditional sermon, the one that I've preached and you've heard, asks, have you ever known inspirational people who've inspired your life by their generosity? I have. People who've watched our children. People who took time to know us. Not in conversation, wanting something, trying to know something, trying to manipulate a situation, but just really giving themselves to us loving us in that conversation, who would show up with furniture or a kind word, uh, were human encouragers, Barnabases, and you've known them too. You've known people whose devotion and sacrifice, even of small amounts, encouraged you. There was an occasion, you probably have heard the story, where there was a woman in the temple who had very little, but she gave all that she had, a couple of small coins, and Jesus made a big deal out of it. He said, look, look, look at that. She's given all that she had, and she became a, a Barnabas-like figure. Or even more, you might remember the time that you were going to the department store when your daughter was no more than seven. You were about to go in, and there was a man, maybe it was a woman, who was ringing the bell with that red bucket in the front. You were going in to buy Christmas gifts, and your daughter, the six- or seven-year-old, had half of her life savings in her possession And she reached into her pocket and was about to put that whole amount into the bucket when you intervened and you said, no, no, no. And later that night, as you were reflecting on that event, knowing that there were people watching, knowing, wondering what you'd done to your daughter by intervening, what you should have done instead, wondering if you were preventing her from becoming a Barnabas or preventing her as Barnabas from influencing those who saw. Generosity encourages, we know that. Barnabas appears again in chapter 9 and verse 27 after the conversion of Saul. That means nothing to us now, these we seasoned church folk. We know how that Saul of Tarsus story goes, but when Barnabas intervenes in, in Acts 9, Saul is at that moment been a Christian hater. He's been a Christian persecutor, a Christian killer. Saul was, in another word, a terrorist. Saul was the Don Carleone, out torturing Christian men and women, out to kill Christian women and men. And now, word comes that Saul of Tarsus has been supposedly converted. And at the moment... When Christians like me are diving under the church pews or locking myself into the church bathroom when wind comes that Saul of Tarsus, supposedly converted, is approaching, it's Barnabas who steps out and introduces Saul of Tarsus, the new convert, to the apostles in Jerusalem. Barnabas, who's practicing the Lord's Prayer, the part that we've said 10,000 times at least, and while You and I have been saying it. He's been living it. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But Barnabas took hold of him 
And he brought him to the apostles and he described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how God had talked to Saul and how he had spoken. Saul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. It was in the year 250 AD, Decius became emperor of Rome. He installed a universal sacrifices to the pagan policy. And some Christians refused and were tortured and murdered for their refusal. And some gave in, but those who stood stood firm paid the consequences. And then, like a Tennessee storm, the persecution came, and then it went. And after it was gone, those who had walked away, those who had hidden, those who had protected themselves, they were called the lapsed. They returned. And you can imagine the struggle. My husband died for his faith, and you want me to accept you back? Imagine the bitterness. Imagine the resentment. And that church controversy is widely known as the moment when forgiveness became the hallmark of Christianity. Forgiveness over fear, forgiveness over bitterness, forgiveness over resentment, but led by Barnabas. The the Barnabas story continues yet a third time, and this is where the sermon reaches its climax and comes to its close. And the story goes like this. A man named John Mark, his mother was a patron of the church. In other words, the church was housed, met in her home, according to chapter 12. And John Mark, the son of this patron, went off with Paul on one of the missionary trips with Barnabas, the first one, actually. But something bad happened in that missionary trip during it. We don't know the details. We know that he quit, that is John Mark quit, or he gave up, or he backed down, or he just went home. The story in 1313 isn't as full as we would like it to be. We do know this, that later when they were gonna go on a second missionary trip and John Mark was proposed as one of, to go again, the apostle Paul, the same one who was Saul of Tarsus. The apostle Paul put his foot down. He said, absolutely not. He's not going again. I bet he was thinking something like, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me, and I'm not going to let you do it a second time. Desert me once, you're not going to have a chance to do it again. And he said, no. So guess in this context who stood up for John Mark? Guess who was desirous of taking John Mark along, according to chapter 15? That's right, it was Barnabas. Barnabas, who believed in people. And despite Paul's objections, Barnabas came along and nurtured John Mark. And as history notes, John Mark came to write the second gospel in the Bible. The gospel of Mark was written by that man. And that wouldn't have happened without Barnabas. Barnabas believed in people. He was the son of encouragement. He was supporting. He was forgiving. He was generous. All those things. And that's typically the grist for the typical sermon on Barnabas. And it's a good one. It's a really good sermon. Because who among us is not longing for a friend, a partner, a colleague, who will be exactly that to us, supporting, forgiving, and generous. The sermon then typically ends by throwing in moral imperatives. We must, we should, we ought to be Barnabas. 
And that's where the sermon today would probably end if there wasn't this last snapshot of Barnabas that we read there in chapter 11, the story that happens in Antioch. And if you're like me, these Bible places just kind of all kind of run together. You know, Antioch, Pisidia, Cyprus, Cyrene, blah, 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 blah. Or you might think, Antioch, yeah, we're going there for lunch. <laughs> you know, just, they have a great restaurant. But Antioch was a place, and it was a place that had a reputation. Antioch, at the time, this particular Antioch, there were two of them, but this Antioch was the third greatest city in the world. How about that? Only Rome and Alexandria surpassed her. It was a cosmopolitan city at the time, and it was a city that was, had a reputation, and the reputation was that it was known for its immorality, famous for chariot racing, a deliberate pursuit of pleasure that went on literally day and night. There was betting, there was gambling, there was the equivalent of nightclubs. But most decadent and famous for Antioch was a temple that existed five miles out of town. It was there for the worship of Daphne. The legend that established the uh, temple was that Daphne was a mortal, a woman, a mortal, with whom the god Apollo fell in love. And he chased, the god, this god Apollo chased Daphne in the laurel groves in that area, pursuing her and to avoid being overtaken by Apollo, she was turned into one of the laurel bushes. Well, there was a temple built at that site, and there were sacred prostitutes who enacted this chase only with a different end. And at that time, to have the morals of Daphne was a phrase that all the world knew for loose and lustful living. You can imagine cities that you know of that might be the equivalent of Antioch. That's the city that you and I would not want our children to be. We would probably be wise to not spend time in Antioch. But it's a city to which Barnabas is sent. And remember the context that we briefly described at the start. The church has been growing since the very beginning there in Acts 1, growing first to the Jews. That's the first seven chapters. And then the Sumerians, who are part Jew but not completely, enter in. And then the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch, representing that entire continent, comes in in chapter 8. And then beginning in 10, the Gentiles. And the first Gentile, a guy named Cornelius, is the perfect candidate. We know, we know Cornelius because he gives lots of money to the good causes, and he's a man of prayer, and we all love Cornelius, and he'd be a great member of our congregation. A, a great first Gentile. But then there's the context of Antioch. After Cornelius' conversion, now we have a whole bunch of Gentiles. And I am speaking for my people here. But at this point, Jews were people who were looking for the Messiah. They were people who were living a life that was coherent based on the Hebrew Bible. These were moral people, good people. And then we move to the Gentiles. And my people, we Gentiles, are not 
of that ilk were considered stinky and smelly and dirty Gentiles. And as it's described here, they don't even know them. Antioch, of all places. And who converts them? Who are the evangelists that convert them anyway? Oh, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. It's not Peter. <laughs> you know, it's not Matthew, one of those. It's some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Doesn't say. And where are these Gentiles living? Antioch. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Can I have a word here for decency? Can I say a word for caution and prudence here about how we go about this? I have some concerns with these converts in Antioch. Will the church be able to stand by their principles? That's my concern. And, let me think about it a bit, are they really converted? Men from Cyprus and Cyrene, we don't even know their names. By the way, those are the valid questions that are asked in Acts 15. So who do we send to investigate? Who's going to look into this? In Jerusalem, where the apostles live, where were those who had walked with Jesus. And they could have sent somebody rigid, somebody narrow, somebody who knows the rules and the regulations, somebody who will enforce the curfews. I'm talking about Sergeant Acuff, or maybe Lieutenant Morrill, or General Law. Somebody to lay it down, put down the parameters. But they instead send the man with the biggest heart in all the church, they send the man who's known for being generous and forgiving and supportive. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Gentiles, telling them the good news about Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived... He saw evidence of the, grace of, God, of, the, of the grace of God. And he was glad. And he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What do you think Barnabas saw when he got to Antioch? Verse 23 tells us what he saw. He saw evidence of God's grace. And of course it was there, because the passage has already told us that the hand of the Lord was with the evangelists, and Barnabas was able to see that. Not everybody is trained to see that. Encouragers are. Some of us are trained to see the problems, trained to see the cup half empty, trained to see the obstacles and the potential dangers. But Luke, at the end of that reading, does something that he doesn't usually do. When Luke writes, he says, they went here and they went there, and he describes it. We went here and we went there, and he describes it. But after this description of what happens in Antioch, he describes it. Then he does something he doesn't very often do. In verse 24, he stops describing Antioch and those activities, and he has a summary statement on Barnabas. He's given us the snapshots of Barnabas. Barnabas with his money, being generous, laying it down at the apostles' feet. Barnabas with John Mark putting his arm around this man whose head had to be bowed from defeat. Walking with Saul, courageously saying, he's with me. He's okay. He's really converted. But now he sums it up and he says this. After he's described Barnabas, he labels him. He said, he was a good man. 
He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. That's who he was. And here, then, is how the sermon might be lived. You and I have spent our entire lives looking for Barnabas, looking for the generous one, the forgiving one, the supportive one. We want Barnabas to come into the picture with us. We want him to introduce us to others, to stand with us. We want him to give us a second chance. We want Barnabas. We want his time. We want his wisdom. We want his ear. We've been looking for him everywhere. We started off looking for him in our parents. Some of them were successful for us and some of them weren't. Then we found surrogate parents, and we found teachers and coaches and grandparents and people in the church to fill that role, saying to every one of them, either out loud or silently, would you encourage me? Please, put your arm around my shoulder. Tell me something. Tell me. Tell me I've got qualities that are worth having. Tell me that I I could do anything that I put my heart to. Tell me that. Tell me something. We've been hunting for these people. We've been hoping that they'd sit down across the table at Starbucks with us, that they'd pick up the phone and call us, that they would go out to the mailbox and give us one of those old, wonderful, there would be letters. But if we have ears to hear, and if we have eyes to see, God has been sending us encouragers all along. The, the encouragers and the moments that they step into. You've heard them. You've lived with them. You've listened to them. And you have shared your heart with them. And it feeds you. But the biggest surprise of our life comes sometime, some moment, when it finally dawns on us because of some event likely that's taken place. Now we're the teacher. Now we're the coach. Now we're expecting. Now we've been called to be a shepherd when we realize that now we are called to be a Barnabas. Your, your, your daughter calls and she says, Mom, are you sitting down? I have some news. We're pregnant. And you realize, Grandma, that your role is about to change. You're going to be Barnabas, not just for your daughter, but for this new little person that's coming into the world. And when that happens... When that discovery happens, another discovery happens, and you realize soon enough how hard it is to be a Barnabas, to hear what Barnabas hears. Oh, he's a loser. She has a track record. They'll just clog up the program. People counsel us like they counseled Barnabas. Just let him go. Well, let's wait a while. Let's see if there's fruit that meets with the repentance. Time will tell. I think we should have somebody else do it. Because it's not easy to swim upstream. It's not easy to forgive a sinner. It's not easy to support a loser. It's not easy to be generous with your money, let alone your time, when the current is flowing the other way. How do we do this? Luke's a clue. Our Barnabas sees the cup half full. He encourages faithfulness. But he looks for the evidence of God's grace and work. And Barnabas is full of the Spirit 
And Barnabas allows the Spirit to work its fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness against which there is no law. But there's one last level, too, and that is that Barnabas is probably the best shot we have in the New Testament of somebody who's living out Jesus. He loves God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, clearly, but he also loves his neighbor as himself. And evidently, Barnabas has perfected what Jesus was perfect at, and that is showing empathy. He can listen. He can ask. And he can imagine, Barnabas can, what it's like to be a Saul of Tarsus. Barnabas could see that. He could imagine it. What it's like to be a John Mark. What it's like to live in Antioch. What it's like when to feel, the, the, what it feels like to express the statement, encourage me, please. In our polarized nation today, and it's no secret that we're so polarized as a nation, God is calling us, every one of us in this room, not to look to Fox News or MSNBC for trajectories of behavior or the way to think, but to practice the underlying Barnabas character, to ask, what is it like to be him? What would it be like to be her? What would it like to be them, to be black, to be brown, to be Asian, and so on? Where can we find evidences of the hand of God? so that we, acting as Barnabas, might be in the presence of other lives, an ability for them, young or old, male or female, to imagine other futures, other futures, hopeful lives for themselves and for their families, to be Barnabas, the son or the daughter of encouragement.